Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. All right, uh, we're going to begin um, by reading through our text. Uh, we're nearing um, the end. Uh, next Sunday is the last sort of part of this story before the crucifixion, which we will uh, uh, remember on Good Friday. But um, it's been a long night in the life of Jesus, and this is where we are at uh, in the story. Mark 15, 6 to 15 says, Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. So the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate. Pilate represents the supreme authority of the Roman emperor, and he has the authority to give life or death. He can kill or he can liberate. The Jewish re religious leaders don't have that power, uh, but Rome does. So they bring Jesus to Pilate, and they tell Pilate that Jesus has committed high treason. Jesus has claimed to be the king. Jesus never defends himself before Pilate, and he is silent before his accusers. The only thing Jesus has admitted to so far was being the son of God. When the religious authorities asked him earlier uh, this morning, uh, with torture and interrogation, they asked him if he was the Messiah or the son of the blessed one. Uh, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. So today we arrive at the moment where the all-powerful Pilate must decide what to do with this insurrectionist claiming to be the king when there is only one king, and he's in Rome, Emperor Caesar Tiberius. We're on the edge of our seats uh, at this point in the story. What will Pilate do? We see this powerless Jesus in chains, beaten, bruised, sentenced, standing before Pilate. His life hangs in the balance. Pilate can say yes or no. What power? And yet, Pilate does not make the decision. It is not Pilate who decides. Pilate brings Jesus before the angry mob and asks them, what do you want me to do? Isn't that interesting? If you think about it, what power does Pilate actually have? His job, as, uh, his position has been implemented by Rome. His job is to keep the peace. And not just any peace, to keep the Roman peace which means crucifying anyone who would disrupt the Roman peace as an attempt to warn people not to ever disrupt the Roman peace. The Roman peace, or as it was called in Latin, uh, the Pax Romana, was actually declared by Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor who reigned when Jesus was born. 
Caesar Augustus, uh, you might not know this, but it's pretty um, profound if you think about it. Caesar Augustus during his reign was known as the Prince of Peace because his issuing of the Pax Romana. Um, Caesar Augustus' uh, uh, father, uh, Julius Caesar, actually after he died was deified, and so Caesar Augustus' full name was Prince of Peace, Son of God. If it's your job to keep the peace, then it is your job to keep the people happy, is it not? To serve the masses. You have to do whatever you have to do to keep the people happy and stop them from uprising. So this story brings right to our face this question, who has the real power? Is it Pilate or is it the mob? Um, or is it these religious authorities inciting the mob? I think any politician uh, will tell you the real power often belongs to the people. Pilate says, but he hasn't done anything wrong. Please don't make me do this. He's innocent. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And so Pilate, and the text says, wanting to satisfy the crowds, gave them what they wanted. If Pilate had really felt that Jesus was innocent, and if Pilate really had the power to live according to his values and his convictions and his authority, He'd say, no, too bad. This man is innocent. I am not sentencing him to execution. What's wrong with you people? Not a chance. But that is not an option Pilate has, is it? He has no choice but to satisfy the crowds um, and the religious leaders who've kind of uh, given them this agenda. And it's amazing because you see different people here, and like, it's this cool exploration to, to wonder who has the power. Um, so if you think about it, the religious leaders have made up their minds. Jesus has to go. Nothing will change their view on that. The religious leaders want control. The religious leaders want the control they have always had. The control to determine who's in and who's out. Who's right and who's wrong. Whose interpretation of the scriptures is the right one and whose is the wrong one. And these uh, authority figures are willing to keep kill to maintain this control. They will banish. They will exile, excommunicate, fire, slander, falsely accuse you if you threaten their sense of control. They will have secret meetings to plot your demise. They will try to set you up. They will bait you. They will look for you to mess up, to fail. Like hungry sharks looking for blood, they will come for you. They will even twist the scriptures when they have to, to justify it. If you think about earlier in the book of Mark, um, the first um, kind of controversy Jesus has with religious leaders is on the Sabbath day. They will hunt you down on the Sabbath day to catch you working, to catch you healing and helping and loving. They will labor all day on the Sabbath to catch you breaking the Sabbath. They will labor all day on the Sabbath to conspire against you. The scriptures matter most when your enemy is breaking them. And if your enemy is breaking them, you can break any of them to stop. It's a violent power. I wonder why Pilate was afraid of them. I wonder in this story, what would happen if he didn't sentence Jesus to death? What would happen if he didn't give the people what they wanted? Would there have been an uprising? What is he afraid of? Would Pilate have been fired? I don't know if the Romans fired people. Was that an option? I don't think there was like an exit interview. <laughs> would he have been fired? Would his reputation have been stained forever? Would he have been canceled? Would he have been humiliated by Rome? Would they have called him weak? What is the one thing that Pilate wants that he's willing to compromise his convictions for? What is the one thing that Pilate has 
that he's willing to shed innocent blood to maintain. We know that Pilate has the title of governor. He's the governor of Judea. He wants this illusion of power and authority. He wants to be respected and feared. He wants to be admired by the Caesar. He is willing to kill to keep this self-image. He will banish, he will exile, excommunicate, torture, and execute you if you threaten self-image. He will wash his hands in front of everyone before sentencing you to death. And he will look you square in the eye and say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I think Pilate, interestingly, can kind of, uh, in this story, represent the status quo. He just wants to keep the peace. He just wants to keep things exactly as they are. Pilate represents the thing in us uh, that likes denial, numbness, rule and order, maintenance. And I think the religious leaders in the story represent a type of nostalgia a violent nostalgia for what they once had, a nostalgia for the good old day, a nostalgia for the day that was back in my day. The religious authorities want to go back to how things were, uh, and they are not going to trust anybody uh, who gets in that way, and they will use whatever force is necessary. But then, interestingly, this story, it feels like the crux of the book of Mark. Um, there's another man, Barabbas. Barabbas is this prisoner um, and the story tells us that he was arrested that weekend. Um, he was arrested for participating in an actual violent insurrection. So last week, if you were here, we reflected together on how the Passover was this very big event that took place once a year where the population of the city of Jerusalem would have like quadrupled. It would be a very loud week. Tons of people everywhere, very crowded. Um, there'd be um, feasting and drinking and, um, you know, your family is in from out of town. Like everybody's there. Um, and while most people were probably just there celebrating a sacred holiday, the Passover, if you know what that's representing from the Old Testament, was the time when uh, insurrection uh, and violence would some be on, on people's minds. And uh, we knew that the Passover was the time when insurrections would break out uh, in ancient Jerusalem. That's actually why Pilate was there. Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. Pilate's house was on the Mediterranean coast, but Pilate had to travel into Jerusalem with Roman troops once a year to keep the peace in Jerusalem during Passover. So we know, based on this little detail about Barabbas, that there was violence in the city on that Passover. The text tells us, now it was the custom at the festival, the festival being Passover, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So I wonder, maybe Barabbas represents a kind of idealism. Part of a, he, he was part of a violent confrontation uh, caused by this optimistic sense that things could change now. We might need to use some force, but we could change things now. Um, you might find it interesting to know that there's actually no such thing as prison in the ancient world, only remand. I don't know if you know if, what I mean by that, but um, you go to jail while you await trial. And then when your trial takes place, you're either executed or released. There's no such thing as a prison sentence. And the issue was never like 10 years, eight, if you're good, and parole. Like that wasn't a thing that existed. It was just, you do a bad thing. There's not yet been a trial. So in our uh, system, we'd say you're uh, innocent until proven guilty. So remand, there's a prison not far from, uh, a remand center not far from us right now. Technically, everyone in there is innocent because they're awaiting trial. Right? So those are innocent people in there. Um, so, so Barabbas, so, so um, 
They release someone from the prison, which is to say that these, this is it's just a temporary holding until the trial. Um, so Barabbas has been in jail for max a few days, uh, awaiting his trial. And if it is the case that Barabbas did commit a murder during a political uprising during the Passover, he is 100% going to be crucified, and he knows that. Um, Barabbas joined with a group of insurrectionists to try and confront the Roman rule through means of violence. The Pax Romana cannot uh, tolerate that. When a group of insurrectionists uh, rise up in violence, it's often because they want to be liberated, right? They want to be liberated from Roman rule. They want to be praised as a liberator of the occupied Jewish people. Barabbas is not so different from the religious authorities or the pilot, Pontius Pilate, or the emperor of Rome. Everyone wants to be liberated. Everybody wants to be praised as a liberator. The Roman Empire wants to unite the world according to the Roman ideals and values and agenda uh, for establishing a particular kind of peace, and Pilate is an agent of this liberation. The Caesar, who reigned during the time of Jesus' execution, you will love this, it will blow your mind. It blew my mind when I learned this less than three hours ago, so we're in this together. The Caesar who reigned during the time of Jesus' execution um, was Caesar Tiberius. And did you know that according to inscriptions found throughout the Greco-Roman world, um, his official title during his reign was this, Emperor Tiberius Caesar, son of God, Zeus the Liberator. He is the liberator. Everybody wants to be a liberator. Everybody wants to change the world. Everybody wants to be praised and, and hailed as a liberator. The religious leaders want to be liberated from the tyranny of religious rebellion. They want to be praised as the liberators of their people. The religious leaders want to unite the people according to their religious ideals and values and agenda for establishing a particular kind of peace. And the beautiful paradox of this story is the role that the crowd plays. Because if you think about it, I, Rome wants to liberate you know, the world and civilize the world. And, and the religious leaders want to liberate you know, their group from like these new ideas and whatnot. And Barabbas wants to liberate his people from Roman occupation. And the crowd, apparently, is all the people that are going to be liberated. The ones we apparently love and care for, right? The crowd, apparently, uh, is the group that all three of these figures care so deeply about. The Roman emperor believes he knows what's best for the occupied people. He knows how to help them deal with their natural resources. He knows what's best for them. Um, he's trying to help them. Rome will discipline them when they disobey, but it's for their own good. It's to help them. It's to teach them obedience. Spare the rod, spoil the child. And we wouldn't want to spoil the child. We love the child. The religious leaders believe that they know what's best for the people. They have the keys to the true religion and right standing with God, the creator. The religious leaders are trying to help the crowds, to protect the crowds from the wolves and sheep's clothing and the false teachers and all the things they fear Jesus represents. In Barabbas, participating in a violent uprising, an insurrection, a political confrontation with Rome because he was a part of the group that believed they knew what was best for the crowds. The insurrectionists were trying to help them, to protect them from Rome, to liberate them. And so there's the crowd. And Pilate is standing before them, just a, a girl and standing in front of a boy, what's going on? Asking them to love him. Asking them to love him. What do you want? I'm joking. That was totally off script, so... If none of you were formed by Julia Roberts, then just totally ignore that. Although someone from England is here, right? That's not a hit. Okay, too far. 
So um, <clears throat> this this crowd um, is there, and, and, and Pilate is standing uh, before this crowd, asking them what they want him to do. The religious leaders are egging them on to show, crucify him. It's like they're campaigning for votes, and the crowd is eating it up. You see, Barabbas actually killed someone, likely a Roman. He might actually have the courage and the grit and the determination to help us. Barabbas might actually be the one with the courage to change things. You think, about why Barabbas? Why do you want Barabbas? He's there. He actually did it. Like, we thought when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was going to do that. It was going to be like a call to arms, and we were going to overthrow Rome. Um, and Barabbas has been in jail because he actually tried to do that. The picture we often see of Barabbas in art and contemporary film is one of this, like, scary murderer. Um, but it's probably more accurate to think of him as an attractive, liberative figure. He was part of violent insurrections, but so was Moses' baby, and this is Passover. Right? Moses killed an Egyptian officer, turned the Nile River to blood. Did not all the Egyptian baby boys die? Sometimes violent uh, ends require violent means. This is liberation. Barabbas is our guy, right? It's likely that Barabbas was a well-known figure who was trying to give the people what they wanted. He had the guts to do it. You know, the story of Barabbas is in all four Gospels. There aren't many stories in the Bible that are in all four Gospels, which tells us this one's important. Barabbas is this key character to unlocking the Gospel story. Do you remember earlier in the morning of this same day? When a group of officers came and arrested Jesus in the garden, one of Jesus' followers cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. A violent resistance for a violent confrontation. I bet whoever did that would have liked Barabbas. Barabbas would be a very attractive option for whoever thought cutting off the ear of a servant was the appropriate response. Barabbas wants change now. Barabbas would never say, stay awake and pray with me. Barabbas would say, get some rest at dawn we ride. Right? In Matthew's account of this scene, um, you will love this. Uh, Barabbas is given a full name by Matthew, actually. Um, Barabbas' full name is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. It's the same name. Um, he has the same name as Jesus. Um, and then the word Barabbas literally means son of the father. Bar is son, Abba, Abba father, son of the father. So we have Jesus, son of the father. Do you want him? I mean, I wonder if some people in the crowd weren't like, wait, what? Which one? I don't know. That's my that's the book of second of second opinion. Um, Barabbas literally means son of the father. And when the religious leaders brought Jesus before Pilate, why? Why did they do that? It's because um, when they asked him, are you the son of God? Jesus said, yes. Um, and to make things even more dramatic, did you know that the name Jesus or uh, Yeshua means liberator? It means sets free or saves. So you have three options, crowd. Emperor Tiberius Caesar, son of God, of Zeus the Liberator? Do you want Yahweh, Liberator, son of the Father? Or would you like Yahweh, Liberator, son of God? Whom shall you serve? Three times in Mark's gospel, the disciples are caught arguing over who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And all three times, Jesus rebukes this mindset. He says, if any of you want to become my followers, you must deny yourselves and take up your cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of this good news will save it. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be the last and servant of all. 
Uh, next in Mark is when Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not to be so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the, the crux. I want to change the world. You want to change the world. They are enemies. They want to change the world. This story forces us to ask, uh, who do you want to change it for? Do you want to change the world according to who you love? Do you want to change the world according to who you hate? Do you want to change it according to how it once was? Or do you want to change it right now or else? Maybe you don't want to change anything at all. Maybe you just want to be numb and not care for a while. In John 3.16, we know this one, we're told that for God so loved the world, not just the group, not just his group, the world, he gave his one and only son. So I wonder if in this story there's an invitation to be a people who are motivated by what we love, not, not by what we hate or what we fear. I wonder if in this story there's an invitation to be a people who want to be changed by this love. You know, what's that famous Tolstoy quote? Um, Everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to change themselves. Maybe this story uh, presents us with an invitation to be uh, a people with the courage to imagine a better way, a way that might take a little longer than we'd like. Uh, Imagine a way that might actually cost us. Maybe um, a way that might lead to less glory, less power, a smaller pension. Maybe this story is inviting us to not be tricked again into thinking that it's by violence and force that we can make this world a home for God and a home for all within God. Maybe this story invites us to be the broken body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus poured out for this world. Um, I want to leave you on one final thought uh, before Kananiah comes up and leads us in a meditation on this. Um, I'll I'll have a thought and I'll I'll read this, but... um, there's a, a sort of a, a hidden detail. Um, you can put the next uh, the picture up now. There's this kind of detail in this story that you might have never noticed. Um, I've been researching a lot uh, on this uh, text in Luke, and I discovered something the last couple of weeks that just took my breath away. Um, this story is not Jesus versus Barabbas. It's not Jesus Christ versus Jesus Barabbas. It's not one or the other. Um, in the grand ecology of God, it's never released one and crucified the other. Um, There's this text, it's in Luke chapter 4, and it's actually on the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Luke 4, verse 16, uh, Jesus walked into a synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, on the Sabbath day, and he took took the mic (laughs) uh, and announced exactly why he had come. Uh, It says that he entered the synagogue and opened up the scroll of Isaiah, and then he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we can see all throughout the Gospels where Jesus brought good news to the poor. We can see where he gave sight to the blind, not just those who were uh, uh, really literally blind and, and, and spiritually blind. We also know that he granted freedom from sin and demonic forces to all kinds of folks. 
Uh, but skeptics of the Jesus story have pointed out that Jesus never actually released any captives. He didn't do it. He said he was going to, but he didn't do it. Uh, and the Greek word for captive is the exact same as the word for prisoner. Uh, so Jesus stood up on his day, day one. This is on um, the last day that we're at right now. But on day one, he stood up and said, he has sent me to proclaim release to the prisoners. And it's a problem for some that Jesus said he would do this. Uh, but it's only a problem for those who think this, uh, for those who think the entire gospel doesn't come down to this moment between Jesus and Barabbas. Jesus did release one prisoner. He released exactly one prisoner. Imagine Jesus on the very first day of his ministry, the very first public appearance of Messiah Jesus. He enters a synagogue and says, I have been anointed to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to Barabbas, and to give sight to you who are blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And on this moment, Barabbas is released. And uh, because of Jesus' silence and his surrender, he is released. Because there is no body, not a body that's in prison or in power, in poverty or in oppression, that the circle of God's love excludes. On this day, a prisoner is released. Um, and the crowd, without knowing it, is about to be liberated. So um, I'm going to invite Ken and I up, um, and then we'll, I'll uh, read a poem at the communion table. Awesome, thank you. All right, uh, it was very it was very interesting going through uh, this passage, and like Michaela was saying, uh, this is one of the only stories that appears in all four Gospels, and I found that impactful. So when I was unpacking this passage this week, I really wanted to be cognizant and aware of the other um, the other depictions of this event. So we can just go to the next uh, next slide. Um, so this. This doesn't appear in Mark, the washing of the hands, but I found this image really impactful uh, for multiple reasons. Um, just like kind of the jubilation of Barabbas's face on the left, but also the very stoic face of Pilate in the middle, <laughs> right? The, um, what must be going through his mind at that moment. He knows Jesus has not committed a crime, but yet in this moment, he's, you know, he's, um, really working through what he has just done. He's sentenced this man to death who is innocent. So um, I, wrote, I wrote a poem. Um, so I just want you to think about uh, both Barabbas and Pilate as I read this poem. Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. I hear my name from the lips of the crowd, not from a place of condemnation or of hatred, but through impassioned pleading that I be released. Me, Barabbas, someone who has rebelled, stole, and murdered all in the name of insurrection against Rome. Why me? Why Barabbas? I stand atop my place of power, a power from Rome, a power to command, a power to rule, and a power to judge. Why then in this moment do I feel so powerless? 
Before me stand two men. One is a man who has violently incited the people against Rome, whose treasonous lips have spewed venom toward the empire. The other is a man who I can see has committed no crimes or insurgency. Yet in this moment, I struggle with an internal plea to save the man from Galilee. This angry mob has the power over me to sentence the man from Galilee to death on the cross. Why him? Why not Barabbas? I've sat in my cell waiting for this day, knowing that the cross is how I was going to pay. For all I have done in revolt against Rome, I should have been punished. I should have been killed. But I stand free because this man, Jesus, is worse than me. Why Jesus? And why not me? Powerless to change what or powerless to change what the people have in place, I wash my hands and say that his blood will not rest on me. It will rest on us and our children, they reply. All this said, so that Jesus will die. He should be blameless. He does not deserve this fate. Jesus will die when Barabbas should take his place. The crowd has sentenced him, and he will be taken away to take the punishment for Barabbas. A criminal and a murderer will walk free today, while this king of the Jews is permanently erased. Uh, so yeah, reading this passage this week, I was really stricken by the difficult choice that Pilate faced in front of this very vocal and passionate mob. Like Michaela was mentioning in her, in her uh, sermon today, he is this, like, he is this ultimate authority figure of the er area. And yet in this moment, he's completely powerless in this decision. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that he's committed no crimes. And he, if it was up to him completely, he would make the decision and sentence Barabbas instead. But he doesn't have that decision today. Although he could find no fault or reason for Jesus to die, he could not go against the will of the majority, the crowd who held all the power. Although we do not find ourselves in the same position Pilate was in that day, it is often a struggle in our day-to-day -day lives on whether we should advocate for those we know who are innocent, vulnerable, alone, or marginalized in our society. Like Pilate, it's easy for us to just wash our hands clean and say, well, it wasn't up to me. I didn't have the power. And, and we do that all in the name of not upsetting the status quo or not upsetting or going against the majority. Uh, so as we close today, we're going to do about... Uh, two or three minutes of reflect reflection. There's just going to be a little piece of uh, instrumental music that goes in the background. And I just want you to think as you're reflecting, as you're praying, how can, how can we advocate for those in your own life? So just think of those around you. Think of your neighbors. Think of your family members. Think of your friends. How can we advocate for those people? How can we go against the status quo and not feel like we're just going to wash our hands clean? We're it doesn't, doesn't revolve around us. We may know that they're innocent. We may know that they're vulnerable. How can we advocate for those people? So today I want you to just reflect on that and also just 
lift up those people or situations in your life up into prayer and just reflect on that. So we'll take uh, the next uh, three minutes here just uh, for a time of reflection and prayer, and then we'll move into a time of communion with Michaela. Thank you.